You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. You know, nations often get remembered for how they acted out. So, for example, Germany. If I were to say Germany, many people's minds would go very quickly to Nazi Germany, to Hitler, and to things like that. Sure, good things happened there too, like Martin Luther and the Reformation of the Church. But atrocities speak very loud. It's hard to forget those. It's hard to look past those. And when it comes to the Bible, one of the the nations that was remembered for the atrocities that it committed was Egypt. Right towards the beginning of the Bible, we meet Egypt, and they are a people that, that hurt God's people, Israel, very, very deeply. They make them slaves, and not just like go out and do our work, but like abusive kind of slavery, the kind of slavery that we've seen in the history of the United States. We see abusive kind of slavery, and and we see total control over their lives to the point that they can't even have children if they want to. They're allowed to keep the girls, but if they have a baby boy, well, the Egyptians are going to come through and either try to abort them while they're still in the womb, or attempt to kill them as soon as they come out. So these are the kinds of stories of the atrocities that Egypt's remembered for and some of the evils that they committed. They had hardened hearts towards Israel and they abused them very badly. And the Bible remembers that because Egypt is going to continue to come up throughout the Bible as a negative theme. They're going to be those people who are the oppressors of the people of God. They're going to be those people that were so bad that God himself had to come and overthrow them and free all these Israel, all all of Israel, all these slaves. It's the grand underdog story of of people who were bound to slavery, but their God was so powerful, he stepped in, overthrew their oppressors, and then saved them. And then brought them from being slaves all the way to the top of the social ladder where they have their own kingdom and its own beauty and its own superiority. And so Egypt will not be remembered fondly. And that's why it's very interesting that in Isaiah, Egypt is suddenly remembered in a different way. The same Egypt That was the bad guy, the same Egypt that was the oppressors, the same Egypt that God overthrew, the same Egypt that is likened to Rahab in the Bible. And when I say Rahab, I'm talking about a kind of like chaos sea dragon in ancient literature. Egypt sometimes is given its own mascot. They're this chaos dragon. They, they, they put chaos on Israel, and, and so they're remembered, again, unfondly. But Isaiah is going to remember them a little differently. He says something that surprises us. It doesn't feel like it belongs. It doesn't feel like the way that you would expect an Israelite to speak. But Isaiah, an Israelite and a prophet, has been listening to God and suddenly speaks in a way that that surprises us. 
We're not expecting anyone to go here, but he says like this, in that day, and this is Isaiah 19, 18. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. And that should catch you off guard because we stop and we're like, hold up. Did you just say Egyptians swearing allegiance to God? Like the one who once upon a time overthrew them because they were the oppressors? What, what are you talking about, Isaiah? And he goes on. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Whoa, 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 hold up. Egypt's going to have oppressors and you're going to save them? What are you talking about, Isaiah? And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship him with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. This is a jarring prophetic word because, again, Egypt is not remembered fondly. And suddenly Isaiah comes up and he's like, Egypt, they're your family now. You're God's people. You worship Yahweh. You give him offerings. You give him sacrifice. You give him worship. And so does Egypt. They do the same thing now. And God will save them from their oppressors. And God will have mercy on them. And it's so jarring at first because you're used to these people being the bad guy. And suddenly God's like, I have my eye on them too. He's not even done there. It gets even more jarring. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, there will be, th be the third... In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Wow! Egypt, Assyria, Assyria, <laughs> Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Mentioned in the same sentence as being one under God. That should shock you. Egypt was the original oppressors and Assyria, at the time that Isaiah is writing, Assyria is the new oppressor. They're the ones who are going to take Israel and throw them into exile. They're going to come into their land, kidnap them, take them out, turn them into slaves all over again. So not only does God care about Egypt, their former oppressors, who have always looked like the bad guys because they did something bad. They were the bad guys at one point. But Assyria, who currently is the bad guys, and God's like, ah, just wait for the kingdom to come. My grand kingdom, where Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are together. That should be jarring to us. 
And it should show us just how much God loves us and how much he cares for us and how he cares even about those that sometimes, if we're honest, we don't care about. The people that you think are your enemy, God doesn't treat them that way. In fact, Jesus said, God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, we're always thinking like, oh, God only blesses those who are good. Yet Jesus comes along and is like, do you see like the sinners over there, like their yard is just falling apart because it never rains on their house? No, God cares about everybody, the good people, the bad people, the people who image him and the people who are corrupted by Satan. And he's coming to try to reach us all. And here's the thing, if you do not have like Israel blood in you, if you don't have Jewish descent in you, then in this passage, you're part of Egypt. You're part of Assyria. You are what the New Testament is often going to call Gentiles. You're outside of the genetic line that God had originally told to Abraham, like, this is my line. Anyone who descends from you, they follow me. The reason that you can call yourself a Christian today is because of prophecies like that which Isaiah gives, where he comes along and he says, the enemies, I care about them too. The people outside of this genetic line, I care about them too. And I'm creating a day in which they will all come together and all chase after me. Now, sure, not every single person in the world is going to choose to follow God, but God envisioned a world in which Egypt and Assyria, the old oppressors and the new oppressors, would eventually come around. And one of the ways in which they'll come around is they will go through their own problems. They will go through their own pain. And it's in the depths of their pain that they will finally turn to God and get saved. And that's the same way the picture is painted in Revelation where the world is kind of turned over to pain, and it's hopefully in that pain that people will turn to God and get saved. As C.S. Lewis says, to paraphrase him, pain is God's megaphone. When we experience pain, it causes us to say, God, I need you. I need help. And how many stories throughout the Bible are redemption stories because people went through pain? Israel themselves, they're going into exile because it's intentional pain on God's behalf to wake them up. Israel, you were the underdog, but now I'm looking at you and you've become the oppressors. You're the new Egypt. So you too need to undergo pain so that you will repent and you will come back to me. And so God not only pictures a world where Egypt and Assyria get saved, where the old and new enemies get saved, but where we ourselves have to recognize that sometimes we become the oppressors and we become the enemies, and we too need to be saved. And so the question that comes for you, and I'd love if you'd leave it in the comments if you have a story yourself of, of a way in which you've done this, but a question comes for you, how do you love your enemies? How do you try to put on your Jesus glasses, if you will, to see people in the way that Jesus would see them? Or do you not do that? Do you take time to view other people through the lens of God who says, I have my eye on Assyria and Egypt as well? Or do you keep it focused on yourself? Because when you're focused on loving your enemies, as Jesus calls us to do, and Isaiah here calls us to imagine, crazy stories come out of those moments. I'll think of a few from my own life here. I remember when I was working on radio, I got a call from my wife, and she was driving, actually right by the church, 
right around that area, when a car just ignored a stop sign, came out, hit her, and she and Beckett, who was like one, two years old at the time, uh, both got in this car accident. And the person was afraid, just drove away, hit and run. We don't know who did it. <laughs> the most that we could really do is drive around town trying to look for a car that's got damage in the front and be like, ah, that matches what hit it. But instead what we chose to do, and I kind of wrote this letter later that night, was put ourselves in a place to love our enemies. And so I thought of, okay, um, what are some of the reasons that they might have done this? Maybe they've gotten in trouble before, really didn't want to get in trouble again. Maybe they don't have insurance, didn't want to get found out for that. Maybe they don't have the money for insurance or, uh, you know, the list could go on. But either way, we decided let's just forgive them. Let's, let's not hold this against them. Let it go. We'll either fix a car or get a new one and and we'll, we'll pray for our enemies. And there's a good chance that they're never going to know that we did that. But that was us trying to look through the Jesus glasses. Try to consider someone who's just hurt us in some way. In the way that Jesus would consider them. Knowing that he too longs for them to find salvation. Uh, another way in which uh, I might have experienced this. Uh, we talked about this actually at Ravenbrook Recovery Church about two weeks ago. Maybe even last week, I don't know. The world's all blurry together at this moment. <laughs> but Maisha and I, uh, who she was with us at 1208 for some time, we were very close friends. And then as we admitted in our story of forgiveness in, in her service at her church, it, we hit a wall. And it was hard. Uh, basically, we both had the same kind of passions and and talents, and it was causing us to kind of fight and argue with one another to the point that it actually got so hard that, that we couldn't look past it. And I remember sitting on my front porch one night, just almost silent like the whole time. Like, what do I do? Like, I don't know what to do. I've tried everything I can think of. I literally don't know what to do anymore. And as I sat there, I eventually just decided I give up. <laughs> I, I don't know how to like repair this situation anymore. It, it's too difficult. And as I, as I got ready to go inside, I just suddenly had this thought come to mind. Well, Jamin, you spent a lot of time in some of your books writing about the Sermon on the Mount, writing about blessing your enemies and loving those who, who hurt you. Now's your chance to prove that you're going to do that. And... I don't know how, but it was almost like a instant, okay. <laughs> like, there was also this like, oh, I don't want to do that. Bless my enemies. But there was also this kind of very quick, yeah, I got nothing else. What else am I going to do? And so it began like, I think a week of sending gifts to Maisha. Uh, it was just little things that I knew she liked, you know, coffee card, uh, some Bath and Body Works stuff, and, and just every day trying to send a little gift um, to to let her know that I cared about her, if I could even admit that to myself with how jaded I had become at the time. In fact, I remember, like, there was always those kind of, like, ulterior motives, like, yeah, this will, you know, she'll, she'll see that I'm not such a bad guy or something like that. But then um, she would get these gifts, and she would 
post online like, oh, I'm just so touched, thank you, whoever did this. And it would warm my heart. And it would cause me to stop for a minute. And even though I may not have always felt it every moment that I was sending those gifts, when I would see the way that she would react, it would cause me to remember to love my enemy and to care about the person that I was having all this difficulty with. And my heart got warmer each and every day. And so finally, the final gift was a picture of both of us. Then she knew it was me. And then we had some um, repairs for a while before it fell apart again. And then eventually came to like a, a full reconciliation down the road um, after we had had many more conversations. And ultimately, Maisha washed my feet at one of her services, and then I washed her feet as well. So it's a long story, but in the midst of that, I found that as I treated people like Jesus would, as I blessed my enemies, as I cared for those who I didn't feel like cared about me, it caused me to see them with the Jesus glasses. It caused me to see them in a different light, and it warmed my heart towards them. Do you do that? Do you have ways in which you care for those that you otherwise would struggle to care for? I mean, let's face it. Right now, there is a lot going on in the world causing a lot of strife through a lot of different people. Um, there's injustice, and so it's right to speak out, and it's right to call out injustice. But do you equally care about the person committing the injustice? Do you want to see them find God? Do you want to see them find love? And if not, what can you do to start loving your enemies? Might just be praying for them. I had a friend who would drive to work and it would get so mad about people cutting them off and all this. You know, it's a long commute every day. And then finally, God just warmed his heart. You need to pray for the people who cut you off. <laughs> and so he started doing that. And that warmed his heart. That helped him get into the habit of seeing people as Jesus saw them. It might be that simple. You know, we've tried to make the habit as a church community before. In 2015, there was a lot of uh, outrageous comments about Muslims, which caused many of us pastors across Jackson to come together and co-sign on a letter saying, like, we're not okay with how Muslims are being treated and viewed, and this is not the way of Jesus. But then our church went the distance, too. You might recall we had a special communion where we got ready to partake in the body and the blood in this communion service. But as you came up to do that, we invited you to sign a letter that I had written to the mosque across the street from 1208 of us saying, we do not view you the way that the rest of the world has been saying that you are. We love you. We care about you. You are our neighbor and we are here for you. And that was the general gist of a much longer letter. <laughs> and everyone in the church, or at least nearly everyone from that I could tell, came up and, and signed this letter. And we sent it over to them with a fruit basket. And then they sent us back way better cookies than our fruit basket. <laughs> and we all ate it, I think, for Christmas Eve service. Like that right there, that's... They're not even our enemies, but the way in which the world has viewed like Christians and Muslims makes it out to be that way. And so we look at them and we say, despite what the world says, despite how even other religions or other uh, cultures might view you, we're not like that. We follow Jesus, we love you, and we are offering the peace of Jesus and hoping to show you a little bit of Jesus right now in this spot and in this space. How do you love those 
who are difficult to love. You have your own stories, I'm sure. Feel free to leave those in the comments. But as we think over today's passage, let it warm our hearts to love the people around us more deeply and to see them as God sees them, recognizing not only that we ourselves can become oppressors like even Israel did after their underdog story, but that we, most of us, I imagine, are a part of Israel and Assyria. We have been well, sorry, of, <laughs> we are a part of Egypt and Assyria. We may not carry the genetic line, but God has said to us, you are welcome in. So let's live out our faith with grace and mercy and respect for those around us to show them just a little bit more of who Jesus is when we love like he does and when we care for them like he does. Amen.